This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Just a quick question about how you feel about drilling in the Arctic Refuge. Totally opposed to it. Completely, totally opposed to it. And I think I'm the only one, maybe not the only one, the only one running who's been up in the Arctic Circle. I've been, remember the great oil spill that occurred? And I watched when I went up there, and I went up in a helicopter up on the North Slope and saw what was going on and saw what was happening as the glaciers began to melt and how the caribou and everyone, I mean, there's a lot going on up there. And it's a real gigantic problem. And by the way, no more drilling on federal lands, period, 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 period. But the Arctic Circle is a disaster to do that. A big disaster, in my view. That's what Joe Biden said about drilling in the Arctic on the campaign trail. He was unequivocal in his condemnation, saying he was completely and totally opposed to it. But as president, here's what he now thinks about drilling in the Arctic. As Kenny Stansel of Common Dreams explains, U.S. President Joe Biden on Monday greenlighted a massive oil drilling project on federal land in Alaska, eliciting outrage from climate advocates who say the administration's accompanying restrictions on oil and gas leasing in the region cannot make up for the destruction set to be unleashed by the approved Willow Project. Progressives sought for months to dissuade Biden from approving ConocoPhillips' $8 billion Willow Project, noting that it could enable the production of more than 600 million barrels of crude oil over 30 years. If all of that oil is burned, roughly 280 million metric tons of heat-trapping carbon dioxide emissions will be spewed into the atmosphere at a time when United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez warns that the planet is reaching a point of no return. So let's be very clear here. This is a direct beach trail of his campaign promise and environmental groups were justifiably pissed off because of this 180. The People versus Fossil Fuels condemned the news on Twitter, saying POTUS has the power to reject all new fossil fuel projects that would ensure the survival of our communities and planet. Instead, he is choosing to disregard frontline communities and expand fossil fuel infrastructure that will drive us further into climate chaos. Hashtag Stop Willow. The Sunrise Movement tweeted out, Today, President Biden is set to approve the Willow Project, the single largest oil extraction project ever proposed on federal land. If he does, he will be abandoning millions of young people in favor of the fossil fuel industry. POTUS, it's not too late to stand with us. And last but certainly not least, Climate Justice Alliance tweeted out the phone number to the Biden administration. It's 202-456-1111. And you can also call the Interior Department, 202-208-1923, and let them know that you oppose this. And you can also politely encourage them to not go ahead with the Willow Project. Now, the Biden administration was anticipating major blowback for lying, but he proposed a bit of a pseudo-compromise to, I guess, make us feel better about him accelerating the demise of our entire planet for private profits. Um, but 
as you might expect, it's a dog shit compromise. Kenny Stancil continues, in what the New York Times described as a bid to temper criticism over the Willow decision and, as one administration official put it, to form a firewall to limit future fossil fuel development in the region, Biden announced restrictions on offshore oil lease sales in the Arctic Ocean and across Alaska's North Slope, while the U.S. Department of Interior said it would issue new rules to block oil and gas leasing in more than 13 million of the 23 million acres that form the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska, where the Willow Project is located. But given the overwhelming scientific evidence and warnings from even the relatively conservative International Energy Agency that new fossil fuel projects are incompatible with averting the worst consequences of the planetary emergency, climate justice campaigners rejected the president's attempt to soften the blow of his Willow approval by announcing new protections for areas surrounding the extraction site. Quote, it's insulting that Biden thinks this will change our minds about the Willow Project, Kristen Monsell, the senior attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity, said in a statement. Quote, Biden approved Willow knowing full well that it'll cause massive and irreversible destruction, which is appalling, said Monsell. People and wildlife will suffer and extracting and burning more fossil fuel will warm the climate even faster. Biden has no excuse for letting this project go forward in any form. New Arctic drilling makes no sense and will fight hard to keep ConocoPhillips from breaking ground. And I wholeheartedly agree with Monsell here. It is genuinely insulting that he think we're naive enough to believe anything he says after he just showed young people, many of which probably voted for him for the very first time, that his word is dog shit. It means nothing. Now, the rationale by the administration is that this was inevitable, since legally they don't believe that they have the authority to deny the drilling permits to ConocoPhillips. So, a court is going to grant them access to destroy our planet for private profit anyway, so why stand in the way? In other words, they're basically arguing that they're not liars per se, they're just cowards who refuse to fight. Wow, so compelling. Thank you, Mr. President. I understand your reasoning now. Now, it's not just that the Willow Project is going to lead to more greenhouse gas emissions, but as candidate Biden alluded to at the start of this video, it really is a disaster to drill in this region. He was right then, and he's wrong now. The Department of Interior's environmental assessment raised substantial concerns about the threat that drilling poses in this region, not just to the planet but to freshwater, as well as animals like whales, caribou, and migratory birds. But this one company's profits is apparently more important than the planet and all of the wildlife that they'll be disrupting, so we have to let them drill in the region. Drill it into oblivion. That's fine. So the next time that the Democratic Party lambasts young people for not turning out for Democrats in elections, remind them of stories like this. When I was finally old enough to vote, I excitedly cast my first vote for Barack Obama back in 2008, but I learned the hard way that politicians will literally say anything to get elected. Not only did Obama not end the wars, but he bragged about ramping up fossil fuel extractions despite knowing the danger that anthropogenic climate change poses to our entire species. And now, unfortunately, many Zoomers who voted for Biden probably for the first time are experiencing the same disappointment that I felt when I was younger. We're locked into this system for the foreseeable future and no administration is gonna get us out of it. So that's where we're at essentially. It feels like we're trapped. We know that continued fossil fuel extraction poses a danger to drinking water, wildlife, and the totality of life on earth. But our government has collectively decided for us that short-term profits for private companies are more important than the long-term habitability of the entire planet. And despite living in a democracy, it seems as if we have almost no say in the matter. So. It's a bit of a doomer note, but we'll leave that there. There's really nothing left to say. Biden has broken another campaign promise, but anyone who's been paying attention shouldn't be surprised by this at all.
Well, folks, I hope that you've got some popcorn ready because things are about to get very interesting in the United States because former President Donald Trump may very soon face a criminal indictment. So over the weekend, the New York Times reported that criminal charges against Trump are likely after he was told that he could appear before a Manhattan grand jury to testify, which experts say is a strong indication that he will indeed soon be indicted. Yeah. Now, in response to this news, he went on a predictably unhinged rant via Truth Social. So we'll get to that. And then afterwards, I'll tell you my thoughts on what will happen potentially if he is indeed indicted. But first, he writes via Truth Social this morning, these four radical left investigations of your all time favorite presidents, me. God damn, there's four investigations. Uh, is just a continuation of the most disgusting witch hunt in the history of our country. No different than the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, the Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine impeachment scam, the spying on my campaign, the no collusion Mueller report, etc. Whether it's the Mar-a-Lago raid, the unselect committee hoax, the how is that a hoax? The perfect Georgia phone call. I love that he calls it the perfect Georgia phone call. What a moron! Or the stormy horse face Daniels extortion plot. All sick fake news. Mm -hmm. All of the investigations against him are indeed fake. Now, listen, it does seem likely that he will be indicted, although I, for one, will believe it when I see it. But for those of you who have your hopes up about whether or not this is going to sink his 2024 chances, not necessarily. And I think that on MSNBC, Zeeshan Alim wrote a really interesting op-ed, albeit sobering op-ed, that tells everyone not to get your hopes up because even if he is indeed charged criminally, that doesn't necessarily mean that his political campaign is over. In fact, it's not unreasonable to think that maybe it helps him. So Aleem explains, there is an increasing amount of buzz surrounding the possibility of former President Trump facing criminal charges in the near future. The New York Times reports that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has recently signaled to Trump's lawyers that he could face charges for paying hush money to a porn star who alleges she had an affair with him. And as Chuck Rosenberg, a former U.S. attorney and a legal analyst for NBC News pointed out, Trump's invitation to testify before a grand jury in New York this week suggests prosecutors are seriously considering charges. This is the kind of news that thrills many Americans who are eager to see Trump face any kind of legal consequences for his many abuses of power and seemingly illicit behavior in office. But they shouldn't get too excited. Neither an indictment nor a conviction would necessarily kick Trump out of the race. And there's little reason to think that if he were to be charged and convicted, he would pay a substantial penalty among Republicans as he seeks his third presidential nomination. The Constitution's requirements for eligibility to run for president don't say anything about a candidate's criminal record or legal status. There's even historical precedent for a presidential candidate running and winning votes while in prison. It is worth noting, however, as my colleague Jordan Rubin has pointed out, that some unprecedented complications could arise depending on what Trump might get charged with. It seems that certain convictions related to the January 6th insurrection could conflict with the 14th Amendment. But overall, there's nothing inherently disqualifying about Trump's getting in trouble in the criminal justice system. Shame certainly would wouldn't inhibit him. Trump said at the Conservative Political Action Conference this month that he has every intention of running even if he's indicted and that he thinks being charged could even help him. I wouldn't even think about leaving, Trump told reporters at the conference. Probably it will enhance my numbers. Trump's confidence in his ability to defy expectations is unsurprising, but there may be some truth to it. So let's say that he does get indicted with criminal charges. Well, it seems very unlikely that that alone would prevent him from running for office. So the one barrier to him 
getting elected because of these charges potentially would be the political ramifications. And I don't necessarily think that that's going to lead to much because ask yourself this question, if Trump is indicted, do you think that the Republican base will care? I don't think they will. I don't think they will. And another potential uh, thing to consider is, well, if somebody was indicted running for office, what would you expect them to respond? Like if it's a normal politician, I would think, okay, they don't think that they can win at that point. So they're going to drop out of the race. Not Donald Trump. That will just give him more reason to charge ahead because in the event he is elected president again, well, then he's hoping that can give him executive immunity and he may be correct about that. So why would you drop out? If you're indicted, assuming that you can use that against you, against your opponents, because other Republican politicians running against him in 2024 can say, look, he can't win because he's getting indicted. But then he can use that as evidence that while well, the establishment is against him and this is just the swamp trying to take him down. So it could be a political winner for him, although this is nothing more than speculation. We don't necessarily know how this will affect him. But if you were hoping to see the situation where Trump is indicted, that's announced and then he drops out or he's barred from running. Unfortunately, that's not likely going to be the case. So it's going to get really ugly and interesting. You'll probably see more pressure exerted on him to drop out from the Republican establishment, but it's not going to work. I think that he's going to continue to charge ahead full steam and he's going to try to spin this as a win for him. And to the extent that it does hurt him politically and the GOP base thinks that this makes him less electable, which I don't think that will be the case. But in the event, let's say, hypothetically speaking, the GOP base was temporarily um, taken aback by this indictment. I think that with time, his numbers would begin to recover because we just saw he took a political hit after the midterms and then DeSantis started to creep up on him. And then with time, the base, I guess, forgot. So I feel like Trump is not necessarily untouchable, but I think that unless he actually goes to jail, there's not really going to be any real political ramifications. And in the event he's in a prison cell, he could still run for president. So what do we do? Well, we uh, we watch because it's going to be a shit show, but don't expect much because we have a criminal justice system that disproportionately uh, punishes poor people. But when rich people do things like Donald Trump, oftentimes get away with it and get a slap on the wrist or can still do what they want to do and that is run for president so don't expect much but hopefully at a minimum this is at least entertaining so a little more than a month ago we talked about tortuguita this is one of the activists trying to stop the construction of cop city in atlanta but during a raid on january 18th by police Tortuguita was shot and killed by police, but because of the autopsy, we're learning that activists were right to doubt the initial police narrative because it does indeed seem as if Tortuguita had their hands up when they were shot and killed. Vice explains, the Stop Cop City activist who was shot dead by Georgia police earlier this year was likely sitting cross-legged on the ground with their hands raised when gunfire from multiple officers struck them at close range, according to an independent autopsy. Lawyers for the family of 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Pais Terran, known as Tortuguita, released the results of that autopsy in a press conference Monday. The report also showed they were shot at least 14 times, including in the face 
case. The independent autopsy results cast additional doubt on the police's narrative, which was that they acted in self-defense after Tortuguita shot an officer in the leg. Quote, they were shot so many times and by different firearms that the tracks running through the body converge and intersect, said Brian Spears, one of the lawyers representing Tortuguita's family. Manuel was looking death in the face, hands raised, when killed. Tortuguita was killed by Georgia State Patrol on the morning of January 18th as officers attempted to clear the encampment at the site of the proposed training center. The police went to the force that morning planning for violence, said lawyer Jeff Filipovitz. It was a planned operation, yet no one had a body camera when they shot Manuel. So this is an absolute bombshell. This evidence completely dismantles the police narrative, but it's not really that surprising. There was a reason to doubt the official narrative coming from Georgia police, and anyone who was skeptical is proven right by this. Now, I want to give you some additional context. We did cover this back on, I believe, January 24th, and this video that I'm about to play for you is my additional coverage of Cop City, what it is, why Tortuguita was protesting it, and why activists in the area we're doubtful of the police narrative. Let's watch. I want to talk about a story that is truly at the intersection of so many issues. Environmentalism, indigenous people's rights, police militarization, and the over-policing of majority black cities, the American police state, so on and so forth. That story is Cop City. Now, fortunately, people are finally starting to pay attention to Cop City, but the heightened awareness of Cop City comes at the expense of one activist's life. Manuel Terran, who is a 26-year-old queer Afro-Venezuelan forest defender who was killed by police on January 18th following a deadly raid on Cop City. Now, in order to understand why Manuel was caught in the crossfire in the first place, we need to understand what Cop City is and why these activists were opposing it so vehemently. Kendall Glenn of Decaturish explains, Cop City is an 85-acre police-slash-fire training facility located in DeKalb County's South River Forest. The location has historically been the old Atlanta prison farm site and a police shooting range. Former Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced the plan to turn the location into a state-of-the-art training facility in April of 2021. The project will cost approximately $90 million, and the area will feature a burn tower, space for high-speed chases, a helicopter, pad, a shooting range, and a mock village. Yeah. Now, if that doesn't already sound positively dystopian to you, well, destroying this forest is going to have catastrophic impacts on the community because this forest is essentially a shield that protects them from anthropogenic climate change. In an article for the Atlanta Voice, Scott Roberts explains, clear-cutting the forest will have devastating effects on the environment, including worsened air quality and flooding in the predominantly black neighborhoods of Southeast Atlanta. Furthermore, the Atlanta Police Department's current and future use of chemical weapons will poison the soil and the waters, endangering Atlantans' health. So needless to say, clearing out this forest in order to create a massive military-like training facility for cops isn't just going to lead to more brutalization disproportionately of black and brown people, it's also taking away a shield that will defend them against climate change. And to add insult to injury, Cop City is being constructed on land that was stolen from indigenous people and then subsequently turned into a slave plantation. The land belonged to the Muscogee people, 
who referred to it as the Walani Forest for generations. Beginning in the early 1820s, the Muscogee were forcibly displaced from the area through a series of treaties. The removal continued into the 30s. The land then became a plantation for the remainder of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. In 1911, the city of Atlanta purchased the land. Ten years later, it became the Atlanta City Prison and Dairy Farm. From 1922 to the late 80s, the area ran as a prison farm. In 1990, the city began auctioning off farm animals and equipment, and soon after, public notice was issued to discuss future plans for the site. Now, make no mistake about it, the city knows that a majority of the residents are against the creation of Cop City. They just don't care. And they also know how important this forest is for its population. Back in 2017, the planning department of Atlanta designated the South River Forest as the city's lungs. And this was because of the environmental significance of that forest. Now, because it was so important, they initially planned to turn the forest into an urban park. However, that idea was scrapped in favor of uh, Cop City, and here we are now. So activists have been pushing back against the construction of Cop City in an effort to protect the South River Forest and prevent even more brutalization of black and brown people by police. And to resist, they've established encampments in the forest and have occupied it for prolonged periods of time. But cops, however, have been trying to forcibly remove the protesters for quite some time to no avail. And as a result, their tactics have become increasingly violent as time progresses. And during a raid on January 18th, one activist was shot dead. And that activist is Manuel Terran. Now, a Georgia state trooper was also shot and hospitalized with police claiming that Terran shot him. And Unicorn Riot reports that witnesses heard 10 to 12 gunshots all at once. So it was a fairly chaotic situation and police are claiming that Manuel fired first. But the evidence that they released thus far does not substantiate that claim. And there's no body camera footage of the incident as well, since no other officer was close enough to capture the incident. Now, Georgia's Bureau of Investigation has released this photograph of a Smith & Wesson 9mm handgun that they claimed was in Terrence's possession at the time that he was killed. And ballistics experts confirmed that the bullets from this gun do in fact match the wound of the cop that was shot. But activists are disputing the cop's narrative and calling for an independent investigation by an impartial third party to figure out what really happened. And activists are rightfully skeptical of the cop's narrative because they've been caught lying to justify the use of deadly force against protesters in the past. For example, as Unicorn Riot reports, in June of 2022, Atlanta police officers were caught on radio traffic justifying the use of lethal force against protesters who used Molotov cocktails to defend themselves and the forest in the midst of a police raid. No force defenders have been charged for use of Molotovs or incendiary devices. Quote, I told you deadly force encounters, said one officer. That's why I brought it up. As long as we're all on the same page, Molotov cocktails, a deadly force encounter. A deadly force encounter is a situation in which cops are legally allowed to shoot and kill. Yeah, so that right there is why activists are rightfully skeptical of the cops' narrative about Terran. If they lied before to justify the use of lethal force against these protesters, what's to stop them from lying again to justify the use of lethal force against Manuel? Right? Now, me personally, I fundamentally distrust cops, so I automatically just assume that they're lying every single time that they open their mouths, and I work backwards from that conclusion if and only if they provide the public with an overwhelming amount of evidence to substantiate the claims that they're making. But with respect to this story, 
they have not done that. And I simply have not been swayed. So I remain at my default position of distrust cops and assume that they're lying. And short of an independent investigation, local activists don't seem to be buying it as well. And they're not letting police demonize Manuel Terran. And it seems like the community also isn't buying the official narrative from police. So this new update confirms that anyone who was skeptical of the official narrative coming from Georgia police was correct. Tortuguita was murdered in cold blood by police. And that is deeply, deeply disturbing and sad, but not surprising. The depths that some people in this country will go to just for attention is genuinely disturbing and depressing. Nonetheless, we have a situation where somebody who trolled AOC by literally filming himself sexually harassing her, I'm of course talking about right-wing provocateur Alex Stein, well, he's now suing her because after he sexually harassed her and filmed himself doing so, she blocked him on Twitter, and now he's taking her to court alleging that his First Amendment rights have been violated. Now, for those of you who don't remember the story, back in July of 2022, AOC posted this on Twitter about the incident saying, I posted about a deeply disgusting incident that happened today on the Capitol steps, but took it down because it's clearly someone seeking extremist fame. It's just a bummer to work in an institution that openly allowed this, but talking about it only invites more. Just really sad. She continues, here's the video he posted of the incident. I was actually walking over to deck him because if no one will protect us, then I'll do it myself but i needed to catch a vote more than a case today now here's the video that she shared see my favorite big booty latina i love you aoc you're my favorite she wants to kill babies but she's still beautiful you look very beautiful in that dress you look very sexy look at that booty on aoc that's my favorite big booty latina i love it my favorite aoc nice to meet you aoc look how sexy she looks in that dress Ooh, I love it, AOC. Hot, hot, hot like a tamale. That right there is textbook sexual harassment. And he's doing it for attention and clout. And AOC isn't the only person who he has harassed. He showed up to the, I believe, headquarters of Barstool Sports calling out Dave Portnoy. And he brought some guy in, I think, a diaper. And he does these things to elicit responses and gain notoriety. So AOC, what she was referring to there is his desire to get attention. So what she did is she responded properly to a troll by trying not to feed the troll and she just blocked him. But in this instance, well, since she is a public figure, He's claiming that his First Amendment rights have been violated and he's now suing her. Insider reports, in the suit, Stein claims that Ocasio-Cortez was actually flattered by his comments, I'm sure, supposedly evidenced by her flashing a peace sign at him, but blocked him once she realized he was not a political ally. The lawsuit also provides a screenshot from Stein's account showing that he was blocked. Stein's lawyer requests that he immediately be unblocked from the AOC Twitter account, Ocasio-Cortez's personal account, which the suit describes as her de facto official account. Now, let's be very clear about this. Alex Stein is suing her so he can get more attention. By talking about this right now, unfortunately, we're giving him exactly what he wants. And by looking at his video, reacting to his video in a negative way back in 2022, we all gave him exactly what he wants because there are some grifters online who they thrive on negative engagement. Because even if it is the case that most of the people who react to them are reacting in a negative way, that's still attention nonetheless. And that still helps him 
build up his name recognition, get his name out there. And now he has a, a show on the Blaze TV. So by him sexually harassing AOC and subsequently suing her, we have to be real about the fact that this is a troll who is trying to get attention. Having said that, though, there could be merit to his case because, as Insider continues, the suit Knight First Amendment Institute versus Donald J. Trump, in which a federal judge ruled in 2018 that Trump had violated the First Amendment by blocking his critics on Twitter via his personal real Donald Trump account. The ruling established that personal accounts can turn into a governmental one if it becomes an organ of official business. However, another suit, Campbell v. Reich, maintained that certain accounts run by government officials, even those that sometimes tweet about official government government proceedings can still be considered personal and therefore exempt from this rule. So it seems as if there is a lot of legal gray area here and the parameters haven't really been established yet. But because of the Knight First Amendment Institute v. Real Donald Trump case, it does seem as if just as a general rule, politicians, since they are public figures who represent the U.S. government, should not block their critics. However, is there a difference between blocking a critic and blocking somebody who is harassing you. Because in real life, you can't take legal action against somebody who's criticizing you on the streets. However, if that individual is following you around and screaming at you and harassing you, you can call the cops. You can get a restraining order on that individual. So is social media the same thing? We've also seen how when protesters show up to the offices of politicians, they can get arrested. So is Twitter tantamount to public protest? Does harassment apply? These are open questions that don't actually have legal answers to. You can make a moral argument against these things, but it's difficult to say legally what exactly is going to happen. Now, AOC actually was sued back in 2019 for blocking somebody who criticized her. And in this instance, it was very clear that she was not being harassed by this individual. So she ended up settling and apologizing to the individual who she blocked, which is a former Democratic state lawmaker in New York who criticized her for calling Trump's migrant detention facilities concentration camps. So according to a court, that violated his First Amendment right. That was legitimate political criticism, even if you and I disagree with it. So the question is, what's going to happen with this case? And it's really difficult to say. Now, AOC has talked about this before, and she's defended her reasoning for blocking individuals. And she says that harassment is not speech that she has to put up with even though she's a government official. In fact, here's what she said specifically. I have 5.2 million followers. Less than 20 accounts are blocked for ongoing harassment. Zero of them are my constituents. Harassment is not a viewpoint. Some accounts like the Daily Caller posted fake nude photos of me and abused my comments to spread it. No one is entitled to abuse. She added, people are free to speak whatever classist, racist, false, misogynistic, bigoted comments they'd like. They do not have the right to force others to endure their harassment and abuse. So the legal question is, does harassment constitute protected political speech? So what Alex Stein did there was obviously harassment. And I'm assuming that he subsequently took to Twitter to harass her and brag about sexually harassing her in public. In fact, I think he did. I'm pretty sure I remember that. Uh, but is he entitled to view her posts given that one, he harassed her. That's not just legitimate political criticism. And two, he's not a constituent of Representative Ocasio-Cortez. And three, well, he's very clearly just trying to get attention. Is it the case that his First Amendment rights have been violated by AOC?
because if she was forced to unblock somebody who she blocked before, will the same be true here? Well, I think that this case is going to determine legally if there is a distinction between political criticism and harassment. And I'm not qualified to make that legal judgment. Another interesting question is, is an alternative remedy like muting them sufficient? I mean, these are all questions that will be answered by this case, but one thing is for sure, regardless of the merit of this case, it's clear that Alex Stein is a troll and a provocateur, and this is nothing more than his lame attempt at getting attention, but it is a complicated legal question about whether or not lawmakers blocking individuals online is a violation of the First Amendment. We've seen in limited instances that that does indeed seem to be the case. But if it's harassment, does that change anything? Well, I guess we'll find out because of this case. But either way, regardless of what happens in this case, understand that Alex Stein is a troll and is not to be taken seriously by anyone. The state government of Texas is so hateful towards women and marginalized people that they've managed to concoct new and innovative ways to subject people to oppression. It's like they're creative in their bigotry, but never creative when it comes to solutions to help people, of course. But remember back in 2022, how they effectively introduced a bounty hunting system for anyone aiding and abetting women seeking abortions after six weeks? Well, now they're trying to extend that system to drag queens. Yeah. It's as dystopian as it sounds. The Advocate explains, a Texas Republican lawmaker proposed a bill allowing everyday people to sue anybody who hosts or performs in drag where any child is in attendance. Critics say the measure will create a bounty hunting culture that targets drag queens and transgender people. Houston area state representative Steve Toth filed HB 4378 on Thursday. He seeks to define a cause of action for drag performances performed in the presence of a minor. According to the bill, quote, an individual who attends Tens of drag performance as a minor may bring an action against the person who knowingly promotes, conducts, or participates as a performer in the drag performance that occurs before an audience that includes the minor. A winning plaintiff can expect to be paid actual damages, attorney's fees, and get this, statutory damages of five thousand dollars this is so insane the bill uses the same tactics of the controversial 2021 sb8 in texas which gave private citizens the right to sue anybody they thought could have been involved with any part of an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy so in other words it's just a normal week in texas insane now because the language of this bill is so vague which is pretty typical for anti-lgbtq plus bills so as to have the broadest impact this could lead to some pretty insane outcomes. For example, trans activist Aaron Reed explained via Twitter, these bounties can easily be turned against trans performers. This bill would likely ban Kim Petras from performing in Texas, for instance. It could also ban a trans person from singing karaoke. It could ban pride. So obviously the implications of this are very far reaching. And because a law like this already exists in Texas, albeit for abortions, we already know that pitting residents against each other and incentivizing bounty hunting leads to some pretty 
dystopian results. For example, the Texas Tribune reports, a Texas man is suing three women under the wrongful death statute alleging that they assisted his ex-wife in terminating her pregnancy, the first such case brought since the state's near-total abortion ban last summer. Marcus Silva is represented by Jonathan Mitchell, the former Texas Solicitor General and architect of the state's prohibition on abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy, and State Representative Briscoe Kane, a Republican from Deer Park. The lawsuit is filed in state court in Galveston County, where Silva lives. Now, let's pause right there, because as CBS News reported back in September, because of Texas's abortion ban, quote, residents of the state can sue clinics, doctors, nurses, and even people who drive a woman to get the procedure for at least $10,000. So because of laws like this, it emboldens psychopaths like the individual in this lawsuit who is suing his ex-wife and her friends because his ex-wife made a decision about her own body that he disagreed with. He gets to treat them legally as if they were accessories to murder because in the state of Texas, well, an abortion is murder, which is genuinely unhinged, but that's Texas for you. Now, he's not actually suing her under the bounty hunting provision within Texas's abortion ban. He's suing her under the wrongful death statute, which the article alluded to here. And we'll get to why he's probably doing that here in a moment. But still, this whole system incentivized this behavior. He is now alleging that his ex-wife conspired with two of her friends to illegally obtain medication that would induce an abortion. But what does that actually look like? in practice well basically it amounts to one of her friends texting her and telling her that there's an international organization that discreetly sends women abortion medication to the mail and another one of her friends simply delivered the medication to her i'm assuming because she was still with her ex-husband at the time who's a psychopath presumably and she had to have her friend get it and then deliver it to her but all three of these women are being sued under a wrongful death statute since self-induced abortions qualify as murder under Texas state law. And he's asking for, uh, wait for it, I can't believe this, $1 million in damages again because his ex-wife made a decision about her own body that he didn't like. So this is why presumably he's not pursuing this under the bounty hunting provision within the abortion ban because he thought that $10,000 wasn't a big enough reward for him. He wants a million dollars for turning in these criminals who aided and abetted his ex-wife with a murder. It's so insane. It feels comical. The point is, when you turn citizens against each other, the result is predictably disastrous. Imagine this applying to drag queens. If you have a picture of yourself, for example, that you took on Halloween with your kid. Well, somebody could get $5,000 for turning you in. If you are a trans person who happens to be a parent, someone could mistake you for a drag queen, turn you in, and subsequently be rewarded $5,000. This is what this type of law is allowing. And this is all part of the effort in Texas to crack down on civil rights and civil liberties and subject everyone to their theocratic worldview and paint all LGBTQ plus people as if they're all dangerous to children, which is just bullshit. But the actual irony is that 
actual child predators probably love the GOP's fixation on LGBTQ plus people because as Marjorie Gaylor Queen points out on Twitter, a lawyer on TikTok is performing a weekly list of recently arrested pedophiles in America simply to point out that it's all youth pastors and politicians, not drag queens. So let's take a look at that. In the past week, there have been 17 arrests or convictions of adults accused of having sex with children. Of those 17, 14 were pastors or youth pastors at Christian churches. One was the husband of a youth pastor. One, a police officer. None were drag queens. I don't know how many weeks I can keep it up for, but here is this week's count of adults in the United States arrested or sentenced for sex crimes involving children. One Christian pastor, three youth pastors, one rabbi, one small town mayor, one Mormon bishop, and one retiree. Once again, not a single drag queen and not a single person who's transgender. Time now for week three in our series, Who's Making News in the United States for Sex Crimes Involving Children? This week, nine pastors or youth pastors, one Catholic church official, one school librarian, and one Idaho state rep who raped a girl and is being sued by her along with another state rep who helped out her. Atop that, Tennessee's lieutenant governor caught tweeting to a 20-year-old gay man. Oh, no drag queens, no transgender people yet again. You want the totals? Here they are. So far, 30 religious figures, one school official, and three politicians. Nobody trans, no drag queens. That's three weeks. Footnotes, we're not leaving anybody out. This is just the people who made the news. Not all cases do. But wait, I was told that drag queens and LGBTQ plus people were the biggest threats to children. Are lawmakers in Texas going to set up a bounty hunting system so concerned citizens can get rewarded for turning in youth pastors if they're caught within the presence of children? I mean, of course not. It's ridiculous. Their goal is to purposefully vilify the totality of the LGBTQ plus community, paint them all as child predators. That's the goal of these laws. So if the GOP actually cared about protecting children, that's who they focus on. Focusing on LGBTQ plus people, as the attorney pointed out, is a dead end. They're giving actual pedophiles a pass. Now, before I go any further, just make sure that you follow that uh, lawyer on TikTok. She is phenomenal. She has more great content. But with every antiquated, bigoted law, there's always some bogus justification. The Republican Party has to focus on dumb shit like this because whenever they talk about their economic agenda, they start turning off their own constituents really quick with suggestions that we cut food stamps or we uh, raise the retirement age. Can't focus on that because they know that that's not going to be too popular. So what do they do? They find a scapegoat a scapegoat that allows them to conveniently distract you while they stab you in the back. So this is par for the course for the party. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if this passed and other states adopted it because that's the climate that we're in where it's that hostile towards LGBTQ plus people.
Nebraskan State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh promised that if Legislative Bill 574, a ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth, moves forward, she was going to inflict massive pain on the entire legislative body until the bill is removed. Here's her threat, if you haven't seen it, from three weeks ago now. But if this legislature collectively decides that legislating hate against children is our priority, then I am going to make it painful. Painful for everyone. Because if you want to inflict pain upon our children, I am going to inflict pain upon this body. And I have nothing, nothing but time. And I am going to use all of it. If people think that they're going to wear me down, if yesterday didn't show you that you can't wear me down, you cannot wear me down. I literally left the floor yesterday, went up to my office, and laid down on the floor. I laid down on the floor, hard floor, and took a 20-minute nap before going to committee hearings. You cannot stop me. I will not be stopped. So. If LB 574 gets an early floor debate and moves forward, it will be very painful for this body. Yeah. So the reason why we're talking about this again is because she's doing it. Three weeks have passed and she's still going strong, blocking the bill and grinding the entire legislative body to a halt because they have refused to withdraw that piece of legislation. As AP reports, true to her word, Kavanaugh has slowed the business of passing laws to a crawl by introducing amendment after amendment to every bill that makes it to the state Senate floor and taking up all eight debate hours allowed by the rules, even during the week she was suffering from strep throat. Wednesday marks the halfway point of this year's 90-day session, and not a single bill will have passed thanks to Kavanaugh's relentless filibustering. Clerk of the legislature Brandon Metzler said a delay like this has happened happened only a couple of times in the past 10 years, quote, but what is really uncommon is the lack of bills that have advanced, Metzler said. Usually, we're a lot further along the line than we're seeing now. Speaker John Ark has taken steps to try to speed the process, such as sometimes scheduling the legislature to work through lunch to tick off another hour on the debate clock. And he noted that the legislature will soon be moving to all-day debate once committee hearings on bills come to an end later this month. But even with frustration growing over the hubble process, the Republican speaker defended Kavanaugh's use of the filibuster. Now, first of all, the Republican speaker gets a little bit of credit for not screeching about this. I mean, she's just using the rules that are available to her. And in a state like Nebraska, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect the Republicans to be sympathetic towards the minority, but he is. So he gets a little bit of credit for that. But she gets the overwhelming amount of credit. She is an absolute rock star and her relentlessness is just genuinely astonishing. This needs to be the strategy going forward. If you are a Democratic Party politician and your party's in the minority in a particular state, this is what you do. Michaela is creating the blueprint for you to follow and it's working. So she's following in the footsteps of Ernie Chambers. This is a former state lawmaker who's a left-leaning politician, and he did a similar thing, and he was reached out for comment on this particular story. And he said, not only is it working, 
but her strategy might actually pay off because it seems likely that the speaker is going to be forced to pull the bill halting the entire process or the work of the body entirely. So she isn't just winning, she could win entirely, which is incredible. Now, again, I want to recenter this conversation, not just around the strategy, but around why she's doing this and what's at stake. As Julia Conley of Common Dreams explains, the Let Them Grow Act, the bill in question here, like a number of the approximately 150 anti-LGBTQ plus bills that have been introduced in other states so far this year, would prohibit gender-affirming surgical procedures, hormone therapy, and puberty blockers for minors. Gender-affirming care for minors is supported by the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics, with the latter organization noting in a 2018 policy statement that many transgender youths experience fear of discrimination by providers and lack of continuity with providers as a result of limited access to gender-affirming care. A study by the University of Washington found that youths who received gender-affirming care were 73% less likely to experience suicidality and 60% likely to suffer from depression than those who did not obtain care. Kavanaugh also told the Associated Press Wednesday that 58% of transgender and non-binary youths in her state seriously considered suicide in 2020, according to a 2021 survey by the Trevor Project, and more than one in five said they had attempted suicide. Quote, the children of Nebraska deserve to have somebody stand up and fight for them, Kavanaugh told the AP. So what she's doing here is of immense importance. She is potentially saving the lives of trans youth in this state. This woman is a hero. She is a strategic mastermind, and she is damn relentless. And I just can't stress again how other Democratic lawmakers across the country need to pay attention to this because it's working. Why aren't we seeing every other bill being filibustered to this extent? As the article pointed to, there are 150 anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced this year, but there are other numbers that say that that has increased a lot more. So why aren't other Democratic Party politicians following this lead? These bills are getting passed. An anti-drag queen bill just passed in Tennessee. A ban on gender-affirming care was considered. Why are Democratic Party politicians not resorting to extraordinary measures as Michaela is doing to stop these bills? This is what true allyship looks like right here, where you put everything on the line you grind the entire process to a halt so nothing gets done until that harmful piece of legislation is repealed she even did this having strep throat there is no excuse for democratic party politicians in other states if she can block this bill you can do it too so i just want every single person watching to understand that if there's a will there's a way you don't have to just sit back and watch in horror as the GOP does harmful things, inflicts harm on marginalized communities. There are tools at your disposal. It's just a matter of whether or not you're going to use it or not, as Michaela Kavanaugh has shown. So she is single-handedly raising the bar for Democrats across the country, and they need to step up because this right here is how it's done. Pay attention, Democrats. Um... I this is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean 
those of us on the left have been saying for months now that the word woke basically has no meaning at this point. Most right-wingers essentially call anything that they don't like woke, but there is one person who, of all conservatives, should be able to define that word. It's homeschooling advocate and right-wing author Bethany Mandel, who literally wrote a book about how woke radicals are indoctrinating your children, but as you're going to see, she also can't define woke much like her right-wing peers. And the boys over at the Vanguard stumbled upon an amazing moment from Rising where she was asked by Brianna Joy Gray to define wokeness, but as they explain, her attempt to define a term she wrote a book about breaks her brain, and that is literally the most accurate description for any video ever. Enjoy. Americans consider themselves very liberal, and probably fewer of them consider themselves to be woke. And so, you know, when, when well, we talk about traditional- What does that mean to you? Could, could, would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple times, and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that um, I. This is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to re -to totally re imagine and re re redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, sorry, I, it's, it's hard to explain in a 15 second soundbite. Yeah, look, it, time. That moment at the end there where Brianna tells her, you could take your time. That actually had me genuinely cry laughing the first time I saw this clip. It was just, it was so masterful. I love this video for so many reasons. First of all, as I alluded to at the beginning of this clip, it confirms that their use of the word woke is explained perfectly by this meme. Everything I don't like is woke, a book for basic dickheads. This engine is woke. And it's meant to be humorous, but it is literally true. You can't tell me that that meme is inaccurate. That's conservatism in a nutshell as it relates to wokeness. Now, second of all, I love this video because it demonstrates that right-wing intellectuals don't know shit. Actual academics define every single term that they use, even if the definition they're using isn't universally agreed upon, so long as they're using terms in a logical and consistent manner, that is acceptable, that's expected. But these pseudo-intellectuals didn't even complete step one. Define your terms, always define your terms, but she apparently didn't do that. Now, before the word woke was co-opted and subsequently bastardized by the right, it did have an actual meaning. As Olaimiya Loren explains, woke is a term black people created to refer to those of us who were conscious and aware of historical and systemic realities. White people such as yourself now use it as a dog whistle and we see you. Now, of course, she was referring to far right propagandist Christopher Rufo, who tries to deny the racist connotations of the word when used by the right. An example is how the right melted down over the Little Mermaid being black and called it woke, or how they called Jurassic World woke after they shared posters featuring a black actress. I mean, the movie is shitty, but being woke isn't the reason why the film sucked. But back to that clip. So it obviously went massively, massively viral, as the author had predicted, and she responded to everyone reacting to that clip by saying, well, you know, I had a brain fart, but also it was kind of Brianna Joy Gray's fault too. 
She actually is claiming this kind of. So she writes, a bit of backstory. Just before we went on air, Brianna Joy Gray was on a hot mic. I heard her demeaning parenting in general in colorful and nasty terms, stating parents only have kids in order to perpetuate their own narcissism. Robbie responded, quote, there are some good ones and some bad ones. As a mom of six, including a newborn, this threw me off just a bit. Not an excuse, just a reality. I'm human. <laughs> See, the problem is, in order for you to speak as an authority on this issue, defining the terms that you frequently use should come naturally. Now, of course, we're all human. We all have brain farts, right? But you should still be able to competently define words that you use frequently in concise, cogent ways. But the fact that you looked like a deer in headlights tells us all that that was the first time you were ever asked to even think about the definition of a word that you use frequently. But let's be clear, the reason why she appeared hollow and vapid in that clip is because the argument of her entire book is completely idiotic. And the moment she deviates away from her rehearsed talking points, her entire argument crumbles. For example, this is her book synopsis according to her. The crux of the argument of the book is that there is sort of a woke reimagining of our society and it's happening in a lot of different ways in a lot of different areas of our of our lives and there's been a lot of attention justifiably on corporations um in uh in media but there hasn't been a lot of focus if any on sort of the the youngest generation and so carol and i wanted to talk a lot about um you know how this sort of interferes with childhood as as it's happening in america right now uh, there, there's a lot of chatter about what's happening on college campuses but not enough about children there's been a woke reimagining of society. So in other words, children today are living through an ongoing period of social change, whereas that was never the case before. Bethany, you do know that society is in a perpetual state of change because culture is dynamic. You know this, right? Racist parents screeched about the end of segregation in the same way that you're probably screeching about kids having trans teachers. This is not a new phenomenon. The core reactionary impulse by people like you has not changed. What you're saying is recycled bullshit peddled by the right to distract people from actual economic issues that they refuse to address. There's a reason why prolific propagandists like Matt Walsh, Christopher Rufo, and Abigail Schreier all praise your book. It's because your book isn't valuable because it's substantive. It's valuable to the right for propaganda purposes. It's a distraction created by economic elites and you're their useful idiot. So this whole debacle isn't only embarrassing because you had a brain fart. That isn't embarrassing in and of itself. It's embarrassing because it illustrates how vapid your underlying argument is. If your entire worldview comes crashing down in 30 seconds when you're asked to simply define a word that you use, maybe stay in your lane and leave conversations about complex social issues and education to people who, mm, I don't know, actually know what the fuck they're talking about. If you ever wonder why conservatives fixate on cultural issues so much as opposed to economic issues affecting families that they claim to care about, well, it's because every single time they open their mouths, they prove how out of touch they are. For example, a couple of weeks ago, multimillionaire Ben Shapiro demonstrated how out of touch he is by claiming that there's no such thing as a non-livable wage. And this week, he's saying this about free school lunch programs for children. If government can protect kids from the sick radical left, shouldn't they also protect kids from hunger. 
Wouldn't it make sense to strengthen food stamps and have school lunch be free since some kids are in school lunch debt? Uh, well, I mean, if you are a parent, school lunches are not going to solve the problem of child hunger at any serious level. If, if there is a problem of children actually starving, that is a child endangerment scenario to which CPS needs to be called. Uh, if you're talking about like, actual child starvation, the truth is it does not take that much money to feed a child. I know I have three of them. Uh, the, you should be feeding your child before you feed yourself. It's that simple. There's a much deeper problem at work than school lunches if kids are legitimately starving. The truth is, it does not take that much money to feed a child. I know I have three of them, says the man worth an estimated $48 million. I mean, he says this while Americans are still dealing with crippling inflation. And even though in his bubble, no one does struggle to feed their children, free school lunches, believe it or not, do make a massive difference. As CNN reported back in September of last year after the pandemic era free school lunch program expired, for Don Overmeyer, spending $80 a month on school lunch for her five-year-old grandson could force her to be late on other bills. Overmeyer and her husband, who both work at a super supermarket distribution warehouse have custody of the boy and his younger brother who quote love to eat she said now that's just one anecdote but this family isn't alone they make too much money to qualify for their state's means tested program so as a result some of their bills may go unpaid to feed their grandchildren now this wouldn't be an issue if school lunch programs were just universal and everyone got them regardless of income. But Ben Shapiro also said school lunches are not going to solve the problem of child hunger at any serious level. And this is so disingenuous because nobody is saying that free school lunches are a panacea. Other policy interventions are required as well, like an increase in food stamps, which your party, by the way, wants to cut. I'm sure that he supports that as well. But what people are saying is that free school lunches make a huge difference. For example, free school lunches reduce food insecurity by an estimated 3.8%. They also reduce nutrition inadequacies and significantly increase dietary quality for low-income students. And as a result, free school lunches also reduce childhood obesity rates by around 17%, reduce overall poor health by 29%, and free school lunches also improve academic performance, they increase school attendance rates, and they decrease the likelihood of negative social interactions among teens. The benefits are overwhelming, so it is absolutely despicable for Ben Shapiro, a father, mind you, to downplay the significance of school lunches. These are not insignificant benefits. These are very, very important for children. But I'm assuming that his viewer asked him that question because Republican State Senator Steve Drozkowski from Minnesota went viral for being opposed to school lunches as well, albeit for an even dumber reason than Ben Shapiro, if you could believe it. Mr. President, I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that is hungry. Yet today, I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that says they don't have access to enough food to eat. Now, I should say that hunger is a relative term, Mr. President. You know, I had a cereal bar for breakfast. I guess I'm hungry now. Uh, that to some might be that maybe that's the definition of the bill. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see a definition of hunger in the bill, Mr. President. Um, but I think most reasonable people suggest hunger means you don't have enough to eat in order to 
to uh, provide for metabolism and growth. You heard that right. He is actually claiming with a straight face that out of the roughly 5.7 million residents of Minnesota, none of them are going hungry. Just because you haven't seen it, and I shouldn't have to say this, but I am, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean that it's not happening. As HuffPost explains, if Drozkowski wanted to find one of those hungry children he claims to have yet to meet, he could check the very county he represents. In Wabasha County, more than 8% of kids lived in poverty in 2021, up from about 7% the previous year, according to the Federal Reserve of Economic Data. Approximately one in six children in Minnesota are food insecure, meaning they don't know where or when their next meal will be available, according to a fact sheet from anti-hunger groups in support of the bill. But don't worry, because because that wasn't the only reason why he's against free school lunches. He also denounced it as welfare and called it pure socialism. What a fucking moron. But thankfully, most lawmakers in Minnesota acknowledge the importance of free school lunches and the measure passed 38 to 26. And once their Democratic governor signs it into law, Minnesota will join other states like California and Colorado who did the right thing by offering free school lunches to all children. And that's how it should be. Because in the richest country on the planet, we shouldn't have things like school lunch debt or child hunger. But for conservatives like Ben Shapiro and Steve Drozkowski, they don't actually care about these issues because in their bubbles, these things don't exist. So I believe Steve when he says that he's never seen it, right? And I'm sure that everything feels great when you're extremely wealthy, but that's not the reality for most Americans. And maybe you should learn a thing or two about their struggles if you purport to either speak for them or represent them in a legislative body. So we'll leave that there. Conservatives are out of touch, unsurprisingly, which is why they're forced to create solutions to problems that don't actually exist because they don't support actual solutions to real problems. But if you agree with me, hit that like button and don't forget to subscribe to help us reach our goal of 400,000 subscribers. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.